All right. So we do have, a, we do have um, our next two. I'm going to be talking about church leadership this morning, uh, right now, this afternoon. And then Mark is going to talk about a culture of discipling and raising up leaders, which is going to generate a lot of questions about how you raise up leaders in discipleship at your church. So just be aware of that. Write down your questions as we look forward to, to, to be moving forward. Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, take your Bible and open it to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 5 through, five through 14. Or 5 through 11. Yeah, 5 through 11. Titus 1, 5 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. I'm reading out the Christian Standard Bible, not too different from your own. The reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife with faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. As an overseer of God's household, he must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot-tempered, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self-controlled, holding to the faithful messages taught, so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. For there are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It is necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we ask that you would continue to help us as you've been so faithful to help us so far to think and discuss and consider your word and what it says as we seek to pay attention to our ministry that you've given us so that we would fulfill it faithfully. We pray now that you would guide these thoughts on church leadership and how a healthy church should have a good structure and good practice of church leadership. Guide our thoughts, Lord, we pray. By your word, take every thought captive to Christ and lead us, Lord, to more faithfully follow you and serve our churches. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to talk about four things here in this session. Uh, church and deacons, briefly. A plurality of pastors. I want to just point to a plurality and, and some a rationale behind that and the culture that we want to cultivate among a plurality of pastors. Third, a job description for pastors. I wonder what you would say is the job description for pastors. And then, if we have time, a key passage for church leaders that I would just like to uh, briefly uh, meditate on with you um, this, this afternoon. So let's start with the church and deacons. So every a common sense says that the congregation should be participating in the church, right? So there should be congregational participation, whether you're elder rule or elder-led congregationalism. The question is, really, who has the final human decisive function for taking in new members, for excommunicating members, uh, for the church's understanding of the gospel and gospel doctrine, and the church's leaders? Who has the final human decisive 
function in that. Now, we're not going to take time to argue for that here. There's one last final panel in Q&A, so happy to think about that there if any of you have questions on that. Um, but there are elder rule churches with congregational participation, and then there are elder-led congregational rule churches. And when I say congregational rule, I mean making that final decisive, uh, making that final decision, humanly speaking, on discipline, membership, doctrine, and leaders. So that's, that's the context within which we are having, discussing church leadership. What are deacons, and what do deacons do? Let me hear from you, brothers. What, what are, what's the job description of deacons? What are deacons for? What do they do? What would you say? Anyone? Serve the practical needs of the church. Good. Anyone else? Serve the practical needs of the church. Okay, care for widows and orphans. Sorry? Free up the elders, yes. Free up the elders for their uh, ministry of the word and prayer. Yeah, you might, might throw other things in there. Matt Smethers has a book on deacons, which is really excellent. We recommend that to you. Um, but they organize practical service, meet tangible needs. He says in an article, biblically understood, deacons are a cavalry of servants, deputized to execute the elders' vision by coordinating various ministries. When deacons flourish, the whole congregation wins. Uh, I encourage you to, to think more about deacons. I'm not talking about deacons for the rest of this time um, here. But in terms of initiatives and direction, a church is to be, I would encourage you to think along the lines of elder-led, deacon-facilitated, member-commissioned, and collectively or congreg congregationally responsible for exercising the keys of the kingdom. All right, so that's just a little bit on the congregation and deacons. Let's move now to a plurality of pastors. You see here in Titus chapter 1, as, as we read, it says in Titus 1 verse 5, to appoint elders, elders plural, in every town. In Acts 14, 23, let me just point to a few different, a, a few different passages here. You could turn there with me if you're fast enough. But Acts 14, 23 says, when they had appointed elders for them, this is Paul and Barnabas on their way back from their missionary journey, when they had appointed elders for them in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there's a plurality of elders there. In chapter 21, verse 28, when Paul is speaking there, um, Acts 21, 28. I'm sorry, I have the wrong one. 20, 28 it is. Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purposed or purchased with his own blood. In Titus, Paul tells him, again, to appoint elders. Um, in 1 Timothy 4.14 and 5.17, it refers to elders in, in the plural. In James 5.14, you should be confessing your sins and, and, and bringing, asking for prayer from the elders, call for the elders of the church. 1 Peter 5.1 as well. So over and over and over and over again, whenever it's speaking about elders in the church, the normal pattern is a plurality of pastor, elder, overseers in a local church. It's not a command, so it's not necessarily a disobedience thing, but it's a normal pattern which would be good. So we might want to ask the question, if it's not commanded, why should we pursue and cultivate a plurality of pastor, elder, overseers in the local church. Let me just give you a few reasons here. Uh, number one, it follows the biblical pattern. Like I said, it's not a command. Number two, it helps share the pastoral burden and accountability for oversight. 
We are accountable to the Lord, as Hebrews 13, 17 says, and we'll look at that text in a minute here. But um, you share the burden of pastoring, so it diffuses criticism, and it strengthens the power of corrective discipline, especially when you get to stage three of church discipline, when you tell it to the church, and stage four, when the church is deliberating and then finally deciding on whether or not to excommunicate someone, to have a plurality of pastors there, sharing that leadership burden is extremely helpful for the pastors and for the church family. Third... It supplements the deficiency of having just one pastor or fewer pastors. It supplements in gifting, in the time amount, uh, the time to spend with people. There's more pastors to spend more time with people. Uh, perspective and wisdom to, to um, decisions that need to be made into specific situations. Pastors have time limitations. Or in, an individual pastor has a time limitation, a geographical limitation, relational limitations and deficiencies. Everyone has unique relationships with everyone else in the church, and so where you might not have that right angle, you do your thing, and then another pastor does his thing, and together you're able to shepherd the church more helpfully than you would on your own. Um, a fourth reason here, and a fourth and final one I'll say here, is um, it indigenizes church leadership. So it's not just calling for church leaders from the outside and hiring them in, but as you're seeking to raise up a plurality of pastors even from the inside, it promotes the church's continued responsibility for growth, for spiritual maturity, for discipleship, and for people owning it for themselves as members of the church. And Mark will talk about raising up leaders more in a little bit. Um, what I want to now think about some characteristics we are seeking to cultivate in our, church, in, our, in our church in terms of a healthy plurality of leaders. So our church has four pastors. Uh, pastor Peter was just referred to by Bobby, uh, John, Pastor John, and then Pastor Ben is here as well. So we, have, we currently have four pastors um, in, our churches, in our church right now. And um, I want to talk about some of the things we're trying to cultivate in our culture as a plurality of pastors. So let me list a few characteristics here. First of all, we're trying to uh, cultivate a deference to the word and spirit. That seems obvious. We want to make sure that the Bible is being read and talked about in our deliberations, in our discussions, that we're, we're seeking the spirits leading by the word, by the scripture. And so we want to defer to the word regularly. Secondly, we want to listen to each other intently. We don't want to assume we know what the other pastor's thinking. We want to listen and give space for the brother to process out loud or just to share what he's thinking. And then we want to defer to one another when possible. It's not always possible, but we do want to defer to one another when possible. And then, I don't know what your process is with unanimity and agreement, but we want to clearly communicate one's convictions and concerns and our position, especially when we disagree with the others, especially when we're disagreeing. We want to cultivate a culture where we don't feel like we're walking on eggshells or we're going to offend somebody. We're just going to share our conviction. Not out, it's not personal. It's just we're trying to read the Bible. We're thinking about the situation. We're praying. We're listening to the conversation. And we might land at a different place at the end of the day, or at least currently. And I want us as a, as a, as a pastoral team to be able to co communicate our concerns clearly and not hold back. I want us as a team to trust the Spirit's leading of the whole group, even when we don't have a unanimous vote and we don't work for unanimity in our church. Um, in our church gatherings, in the congregational meeting, or even in the pastor council. We just work for a, a majority there. Um, we want to invest in each other. We have 141 members, four pastors. We got a lot of people to minister to and disciple, but we want to make sure that we are spending some time investing in each other as fellow pastors. But we also want to be investing in members of the church because they are the ones who are going to be building up other people and speaking the truth in love. Two other things I want, uh, I'm trying to cultivate and pray that we cultivate in our church uh, we keep reminding each other as pastors, and we want to keep remembering that we are, that I am a member first before I'm a pastor. 
I'm a church member before I'm a pastor. Your membership is foundational to your pastoral ministry. Like the fundamentals of anything you learn, any activity you engage in, learning the fundamentals first. Being a good member before being a good pastor. Because you were a member before you were a pastor, I hope. Um, and after you're done pastoring, you will continue to be a member of a church. And currently, while you're pastoring, you are still a member of a local church. And so we want to remember that we are members of the church before we are pastors. And I am going to shift in a little bit to a job description for a pastor. But um, I'm curious from you, I think what Jonathan laid out earlier was a job description for members. I think every pastor should have ready in his mind a job description for uh, the members of the church. Do your members know what they're responsible to do? And have you taught that regularly and clearly to them? So, I'm going to ask you here again, what are some of the duties you think are the biblical duties of a church member? Just start shouting some out. Let's just get a few here. Gather. Protect the gospel. Good. Pray. Serve. Evangelize. Love one another. Give. Disciple. Teach. Okay. Uh, in, in a Matthew 28, 20 sense, go, going to, teaching them to obey everything Christ commanded, maybe not as an office. Yeah, so well, the way we summarize it is, um, just to summarize it here, another way of doing it is, we, I think I have six things. So care for one another. So see, care for one another. Uh, eyes influence each other towards Jesus. That's what discipling is. You're just influencing towards your highest value. Uh, gospelize one another. So speak the goodness of God to your neighbors, but also to one another because we're sinners. Um, assemble or attend regularly. Attend the gatherings regularly, morning and evening, but especially morning. But if you can make the evening, that's our pastoral expectation. You'd come in the evening as well. So attend the gatherings regularly. Uh, R is um, recognize true gospel confessors and true gospel confession. So come to the members meetings so that we are recognizing who's coming in, who we're going to baptize, whether we should baptize them, who we're going to excommunicate, what our confession of faith is as a church. That's the church's responsibility. So come and recognize gospel confessors and gospel confessions. And then uh, S is support the church in prayer financially uh, with, your, with, your, with your time, your talents, your love. So uh, C, cigars, C-I-G, ARS, cigars, is how I remember the duties of, um, of a member. Care for one another, influence towards Jesus, gospelize one another, attend regularly, recognize gospel confessors and gospel confession, and support the church in prayer and time. It has nothing to do with cigars, but just a way for me to remember it. But you should have some way that you can communicate regularly to your church what their job is in a succinct way. And, and my point here is, as a pastor, you should be doing those things. You should be caring for each other. You should be discipling people. You should be gospelizing. You should be, you should be attending, right? You should be at the members' meetings. You should be supporting the ministry. That's what we do, and then pastors just do that more and more. So that's the foundation for our pastoral ministry. And then lastly, what we want to do in our, in our culture of, plural, of a plurality of pastors is that we want all of the pastors to be investing in men who reveal potential and possibly aspire to pastoral ministry. That doesn't mean we, we can foresee the future, but just we want, to have, we want to be on the lookout and investing in men generally, but then also looking for particularly those who might have potential to be a pastor to replace us. As we, our non-staff pastors have a term, we got two terms of three years each, and then they have to roll off for a year before they come back on if they, if they and the elders decide to bring them back on. So we need to constantly be raising up elders. Again, Mark will be talking about that in a minute here. Okay, so I, I talked about the job description of members. What's the job description of pastors? There's a lot of different ways to say it. How would you, what, what are some of the uh, duties of a pastor? Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 
Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. What else? Shepherd the flock. Preach. Okay. Sacraments, administer sacraments. Okay. What's that? Defend doctrine. Yeah. Good one. So the way I'm going to summarize this one is with the acronym POEM. P-O-E-M. It's really two P's though. P-P-O-E-M. So POEM. It's not clean. But it is what it is. So this is what pastors should be doing. Okay. This is what you should. This is your job description. And I'll give you a Bible verse for each of these. Okay. So number one. The first P is pray. The second P is um, preach. Okay. So pray. Acts 6.4. Why did they have deacons? Or why did they have these proto-deacons here? So that the apostles can devote themselves to the ministry of the word and prayer. So pray. Pastors take time to pray. You should be praying. And if you're a staff pastor, you should especially be having time to pray. So pray together in your pastor's meetings. Pray for each member of the church. We have a membership director. I don't know if you have a membership director, but pray for each member of the church and pray for the church as a whole and spend a lot of time praying for the church. This is fundamental to your work as a pastor. For God, asking God to come and work in your people's lives. I like how Lig Duncan says it. Pray down heaven on your people's lives. That God would move and act, seek and, and yeah, knock and seek and ask and ask God on their behalf. Intercede for your church family. So pray. Secondly, preach. Acts 6, 4, again, it's not just the ministry of prayer, but the ministry of the word. John 21, 15 to 17, Jesus tells Peter, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And so we want to be preaching the word, teaching the word so that people would know what God's word says. So pray, preach. Next, go to Hebrews 13, 17. I want you to turn to this one. Hebrews 13, 17. This verse... I mean, if any verse would encourage you to come to a conference like this and, and call you to pay attention to what pastoring is and what a church is, it would be a verse like Hebrews 13, 17. So turn there with me. Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them since they keep watch over your souls as those who will give, what? An account. So that they can do this with joy, not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So this command is not actually for pastors. This, this, this word is for the members of the church, right? The, those under the leaders. That they would obey the leaders. But it, it gives us an insight on, on, on biblical leadership in the church, right? And what it says here is that leaders keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So the O here in my poem, pray, preach, and, and the O is oversee. Oversee the flock. Watch over the flock. You're an overseer of the flock. And so you need to watch out for the members individually and as a whole because you will give a what? An account. So that means, the way I understand that very practically is November 2014, when I started pastoring Bethany Baptist Church, all the way until this day, I am going to give an account for, before God for those members of the church. And for how I pastored and preached and oversaw and equipped and prayed and modeled mature Christianity and discipled and lived among them as a pastor, I will give an account to God from November to till whenever I stop pastoring. John Lee, our most recent pastor, uh, came on May 31st last year. So from May 31st last year, he's on, he's on staff, as, or not just on staff, he's appointed as a pastor before the Lord in our church, congregationally recognized. From that point on, he is accountable as a leader. He will give an account with the rest of the elders for his pastoral ministry and our pastoral ministry that we shared together. Brother, that's scary. This is scary. 
These are the types of things that should make us tremble at God's word and humble ourselves before God and plead for help to shepherd well. Along with oversight, go to Acts 20, verses 27 to 29. Acts chapter 20, verses 27 to 29 here on oversight. It says this. Acts 20, verses 27 to 29. Acts 20, verse 27 says, um, Because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God, and then verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd. So you're an overseer. That's why you need overseers. To shepherd the flock of God, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Look at verse 29. Why? I know that after my departure, who's going to come in to the church? Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So who's going to come into the church? Savage wolves. Who's going to protect them? Who's going to watch out and look over the whole church to make sure the wolves don't destroy and take any of the sheep? The overseers. Because their job is to watch over the flock. To watch over the flock. And just a scary verse here to, to sober us as we're thinking about that. Look at verse 30. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. So where are some of these wolves going to come from? From the pastors that are currently pastors. So I look at, I see my three other pastors right here. One of us, maybe. We need to watch out, watch our lives and our doctrine, right? But we need to watch over the flock, watch over each other. Because you could not be a wolf now in 2022. But in 2024, the seeds of rebellion and disobedience and lack of faith and idolatry can sow seeds that five years after 2024, you can actually become a wolf. So we need to watch over the flock with declaring the word of God and personally warning them. So that's O. So pray, preach, oversee. The E now in poem is equip. And Jeff said it. Uh, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Uh, Christ gives pastors to the church. He gave some to be pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So here pastors along with the other, um, the other titles here, the other roles here. Pastors are to the pastors and teachers are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So think about the saints and think about how to equip them. So look at each, I have to look at each of the 141 members of the church. As a whole, are we equipping them? And individually, are we equipping them for their work of ministry? Because you guys are on the right behind, like Mark was talking about, in the, kind of in the middle of the body. You're not on the front, front line, right? Engaging, I and mean, we engage the world as members of the church too. But our members are out there nine to five, right? They're at work. They're in the neighborhood. They're in the schools. They are engaging people with the love of Christ as they work for God's glory, as they interact for God's glory, and as they engage the world for God's glory. That's the front line. And here we are equipping them for their work of ministry, to do the care and influence and gospelizing and discipling in the church and then engaging outside with discipling and loving their neighbors as themselves. We're equipping them for the work of the ministry. Do you know what your members need, what, your, what different members need for their ministry? Our job is to equip them for that. If I could kind of put these last two together, overseeing, watching over all the members for their spiritual health and guarding them from spiritual danger and equipping them, um, there's two kind of resources I have. One is from Andy Davis, and I'm going to send you guys an email again with this Google Doc with a, with a bunch of resources, and there's this toolbox for skillful shepherding. He has different member conditions. So as we're watching over the flock and seeking to equip them, a, a member could be living fruitfully, so just from health to unhealth, living fruitfully, lacking information, needing to get moving, 
suffering trial, starting to go astray, determined to wander, stubborn unrepentance. Okay, so he has this, this spectrum of members, and then there's a spiritual danger. For those living fruitfully, they're in danger of failing to continue. So what should we do? We should encourage and praise them. For those who are lacking information, what's their spiritual danger? Doctrinal ignorance. So we should teach and instruct them. What about for the members who are needing to get moving? Their danger is laziness and neglect. So we need to exhort and spur them on and urge them forward. For the members who are suffering trial, their danger is discouragement. And so we need to comfort and console them. For the members who are starting to go astray, the spiritual danger is a new sin pattern that's about to take root. And so we need to warn them and correct them and admonish them. For the member who is determined to wander, his spiritual danger is habitual sin, and so we must rebuke him. And for the stubbornly unrepentant, his spiritual danger is apostasy, and we must move towards church discipline and eventually, if unrepentant, excommunicating him. This is watching over the flock, caring for the flock, equipping the flock for the work of ministry to love God and love neighbor. Okay, so that's the E. So pray, preach, oversee, equip, and lastly, M is model. You are models. Models of what? 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 has the qualifications of elders or overseers there. First Tim, or Titus 1, 5 through 9 has qualifications or characteristics of an, an elder. And so what are they? Don't get drunk. Um, that's good to not get drunk. Um, they should manage their household well. They should be blameless. They should be the husband of one wife. If you look at all those characteristics in Titus 1, 5 through 9 and 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, these are characteristics that are required of whom? Just elders? Of whom? All Christians. But these characterize elders. They are examples, they are models of mature Christianity. It's a picture of mature Christianity. And so part of our job is to just be who we are in Christ and keep growing in Christ such that we're modeling out of our love for Christ and out of God's grace working in us through faith in Christ, we are modeling mature Christianity out of the integrity of our lives. That's our job, to pray, to oversee, to equip, and to model for mature, and model mature Christianity to, to them. Let me just say a word here. There was, you know, someone tweeted recently, I wish I remembered who, someone on Twitter, um, a pastor tweeted recently that he noticed a trend that he's noticing that a lot more pastors and seminarians are looking forward to pastoring small churches and not desiring to pastor big churches. And he was saying back in the day, everyone was, was envisioning themselves as being the, being the conference speaker and being the pastor of the big church, and now pastors are seeking smaller churches. I talked to a brother here in the LA area who pastored, I, two or 3,000 people came to the LA area, and he said to me, we had lunch, he said, PJ, I will never pastor a church bigger than 200. I refuse to do it. And I was, brother, t tell me, everyone, I, I thought a lot of people were wanting to go the other way. What, what's going on there, you know? Um, now, for whatever reason, I think part of it is this quote um, by John Brown that uh, Mark has made popular. So I'm going to read it to you. As we think about overseeing the flock, uh, as we think about equipping each of the saints, and really Hebrews 13, 17, as you think about giving an account for you, how you oversaw the flock and how you, equip, uh, how you have equipped the saints and preached them and prayed for them, listen to this quote by John Brown of Haddington. I know the vanity of your heart. Oh, this, I'm sorry, I'll say a little bit more. This is in a letter of paternal counsel written to one of his pupils, newly ordained over a small congregation. And here's what he says, quote, I know the vanity of your heart and that you will feel mortified that your congregation is very small. 
in comparison with those of your brethren around you. But assure yourself on the word of an old man that when you come to give an account, when you come to give an account of them to the Lord Christ at his judgment seat, you will think you have had enough. Shepherd the flock before the Lord as an under-shepherd. Now let's turn here with our remaining time to Luke 22. I want us to spend some time here with a short meditation, short exposition here. I am a preacher, and I do want to preach, so I made sure I reserved enough time to do this. Luke 22, 31 to 34. Here's one key passage to help leaders lead from out of a love for Christ to love others well in Christ and strengthen them in Christ. Luke twenty-two thirty-one to 34. Hear again the word of the Lord. This is Jesus speaking to Peter. Sorry, I'm not going to read yet. Jesus speaking to Peter the night before he's about to be crucified. So this is a Thursday night, I think, before the Friday morning when he's up on the cross. So he says to Peter, Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back again, and we have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Lord, he told him, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you deny three times that you know me. Brothers, I want you to see a few things here because I think if we meditate on this passage here just briefly, it will give us strength to strengthen our brothers. I mean, when you look at it at the very end of verse 32, Peter's call is to strengthen his brothers. That's what we as leaders do. We strengthen our brothers and sisters. So I want to think about three things in this, pas- in this passage. I want you to first think in verse 31. I want you to understand Satan's strategy. Okay? Understand Satan's strategy. In verse 32, I want, you to think of, I want us to think about resting in the Messiah's ministry. And then lastly, I want us to think about returning and strengthening our family. So first, verse 31. Understand Satan's strategy. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. So when Satan is asking, who is he asking? Presumably God, right? He's asking God. Does that remind you of anything? Satan asking to sift any other story in the Bible? Joe, right? So here's Satan asking to sift you, Peter, like wheat. Actually, it's you all. It's, a, it's in the plural. Um, Satan has asked to sift you all like wheat. So Satan wants to sift them. I want you to think about the sifting. How does Satan sift people? If you look at Mark chapter 4 and you think about the parable of the sower, there's the seed that, that uh, there's, you know, seed that's on four different grounds on the first soil. As soon as, the, as soon as the word of God hits the heart, what happens? Birds come or Satan comes and what? Snatches it out. So that's one way Satan will, will sift you is by just snatching out the word. As soon as it's in one ear, it's right out the other, right? It's snatched right out the other. A second way, the second soil, there's, there's um, the word that falls on and it, it, um, it bears fruit and it springs up right away right? But then um, the other weeds around it choke out the plant. And so it dies. And Jesus talks about the the cares and the the pleasures of this world choking out the word in someone's heart. And then the next one 
is um, the, the, uh, it's, a plant springs up after the word comes and then the sun beats down on it and it dies. And he, talk, he talks about the afflictions and the troubles of life and the pains that cause the word to be choked out. So if Satan wants to sift you, he might just take the word out right away, but other times he uses pain. And if pain, does, if pain draws you closer to God, then he'll use pleasure. And if pleasure draws you, draws you closer to God, then he'll use pain, right? He'll try to distract you with pleasure or he'll try to choke out the word with pain. So pain or pleasure, trials or treasures. Either way, Satan will sift. And here, for Peter, it's going to be more of the, the pain here in this text. So understand that Satan has methods and, and Satan has a goal. What's the goal in this passage? We see the goal in verse 32. Now we get the goal... Um, by, by looking at Christ's prayer for Peter. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not what? Fail. So, so Jesus is going to, to guard Peter's faith. What, what is Satan after then? Peter's what? Faith. He wants Peter's faith to, to fail. He doesn't want him just to sin. He wants him to sin and be stubbornly unrepentant in sin and to choke the word fully out so that he falls away from Christ and no longer follows Jesus. Much like another apostle, right? Even on this night betraying Jesus, Judas. And so Peter would sin, right? We know Peter would sin. What was Peter's problem? We need to understand Satan's strategy. What did Peter not understand? You know, Dominic Smart wrote a, wrote a book here and on, on this passage and on other passages on following Christ. And he, here's what he said. There's four things Peter got wrong. And I see this oftentimes as a mirror of my own life. He underestimated, he underestimated um, the enemy. He underestimated Satan. Number one. Number two, he underestimated Jesus' warning. Number three, he overestimated his own strength. And number four, he confused his sincerity for Christ for his security in Christ. He confused his sincerity for Christ for his security in Christ. And you see that here because as he goes on, he says, I'm ready to go to jail. I'm ready to die. I don't think Peter's lying here. He's speaking sincerely out of the sincerity of his heart. He loves Jesus. He sincerely loves Jesus. And yet that is not going to protect you from the evil one. And so we need to not only understand Satan's strategy, we need to rest in the Messiah's ministry. Look at verse 32. Rest in the Messiah's ministry. Now there's two aspects here of resting in the Messiah's ministry. Look at verse 32. First of all, it says, um, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. But I have prayed for you that your, your faith may not fail. A few things I want to point out here. Number one, or there's two things I want to say. One, if you're going to rest in the Messiah's ministry, rest in the person who prays for you. And then secondly, rest in the prayer he prays for you. Okay? Rest in the person who prays for you in the prayer. And, and the reason why I say rest in the person who prays for you is because in verse 32 he says, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I, I myself, in the Greek there's, there's that emphasis, I myself have prayed for you. There's a contrast. Who's praying? I'm praying. Who else is praying? Satan is praying. Satan is asking God for something, and I myself am asking God for something, and you need to rest in me. I am praying for you. I am praying for you. Jesus is for Peter. Who is this Jesus? We already said he's the, he's the God-man. He's the son of, son of God, God the Son, come in human flesh to be for us, and we know he's for Peter, and we know he's for us because he gave his life for us. He came to make the sacrifice as the great high priest, and he came to be the sacrifice for us. And so, brothers, pastors, rest in Jesus. He is for you. 
He is for you. He died for your sins and rose from the dead. He's for you. But don't only rest in the person who prays for you. Rest in the prayer he prays for you. Now this is interesting. Look at verse 32. I have prayed for you. What's Jesus' prayer request here? That your faith may not what? Fail. Notice what Jesus doesn't pray for. What doesn't he pray for? I pray, I pray that when, the, when that girl asks you, if you're a follower, that you stand up and say, yeah, I am, so what? I didn't, I didn't pray for boldness. I didn't pray that you would, you would just, you, that, that you would pass this trial of flying colors. I didn't pray that God would deliver you from the evil one or, or that he would lead you not into temptation. He tells us to pray that. That's a fine prayer to pray. He doesn't pray that here. He doesn't pray that Peter would not be led into temptation. He prays that his faith may not fail. Why would you, why would you not pray that he avoids temptation? Shouldn't you just avoid temptation? If you love Peter, don't you want him to avoid temptation? He's going to be discouraged. Why? Well, in this prayer, Jesus is going for the goal that Peter's faith would not fail in the end. But he is not praying, specifically, this is not mentioned here, maybe I'm arguing from silence here, that he's not praying that he would be delivered from this temptation. In other words, Jesus is going to allow Peter... He's going to allow Peter and guide Peter to the hottest and hardest part of the battle. And he's going to face Satan here and face the sifting. And when he faces that sifting, he is going to fail. He's going to sin. He's going to deny Christ. Not once, not twice, three times. He is going to deny Jesus. After he just said, I'm ready to die for you. He's going to fall flat on his face. And God wants us, Jesus wants Peter to go to the hardest and hottest part of the battle where the fiercest part of the war is happening so that bloodied, bruised, disappointed, and utterly defeated, Peter would learn how to win the war. He would lose the battle and learn how to win the war. And I want to encourage you that, that Jesus prays this for you too. Your name is not Peter. This text do not, does not directly say that, that Christ prays this for you. But Hebrews 7.25 does say that exactly. Okay, so Hebrews 7.25, let me just read it to you. It says this. This is good news for all of us pastors and, and Christians. Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. Amen? Christ prays for you. He is for you and he intercedes for you to save you completely so that your faith would not fail. Christ will hold you fast. He won't let you go. He who began a good work in you will complete it. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So Peter would sin. But his faith would not fail. But he would sin. So, so what should he do after sinning? Well, let's read on the verse. Jesus gives us what happens next, right? So you're going to understand same strategy, rest in the Messiah's ministry. And lastly, verse 32, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. So point three here, return and strengthen your family. Return and strengthen your family. Return from sin. Turn back. You fall into sin. You fail not once, not twice, but three times. Return to me. Come to me. Repent and trust in me afresh. And then strengthen your brothers. And I have a question for you. You guys know the book of Acts and uh, the rest of the New Testament. Does Peter go on to strengthen his brothers? Yes or no? 
in the book of Acts, does he? He does, right? He takes up the lead, and he's able to lead the church. He's able to strengthen his brothers and sisters for ministry. But that's not the first command, not strengthen your brothers first. What does it say first? Return. Repent. It's in that order. Repent first. Humble yourself before God. Lean freshly on Christ. And then from that fresh repentance and humbling before God, now strengthen your brothers. Brothers and sisters, you need to learn grace. We need to learn repentance to fall on our face before God and walk humbly with our Lord. And humbling ourselves, like Peter is humbled here, means we need to learn to heed Christ's warnings, to take Satan seriously, to learn to not overestimate ourselves or put ourselves above others. We need to learn to not find security in our sincerity, but to find our security not in our sincerity, not in our giftedness, not in our experience, not in our office, not in our team, not in our community, not in our church, not in our reputation, not in our credentials, not in our seminary degrees, not in our reputation, but find our security in Christ Jesus alone. Now from here, from this humbling and resting in Christ and repenting from sin, you'll be increasingly fitted for effective leadership. Leading your people to Christ to walk with him as vulnerable sinners in a lifetime of spiritual warfare. Because who do we strengthen? Who are our brothers and sisters? Aren't, are they not sinners? Will they not fail? Uh, we serve sinners. We lead repentant sinners. Church leaders are lead strengtheners of sinners. Now when we strengthen our people, when you seek to, to strengthen your, your people as a leader, you've got to ask yourself this question. Will I strengthen them by telling them to be strong like me, or, or will I strengthen them by telling them that I am weak, but like me, you have a strong Savior who is for you, and died for you, and lives for you, and prays for you. How are we going to strengthen our brothers and sisters in the church? So to be a good church leader, if you're going to be this first, return, then strengthen your brothers. Brothers, and brothers get this. Church leaders are lead repenters. Church leaders are lead repenters. They're lead returners. They're lead heeders to warning. They are lead resters and reliers on Christ's person and prayers. Brothers, I have good news for you. Christ draws us in. Christ makes himself known to us more deeply. Christ gives us faith and joy in him and weans us off other idols and securities. Jesus will humble us. Christ increases our love for him and for others and he'll fill us to the end. Let us increasingly learn how to lead out of weakness so that we increasingly turn to Christ who has infinite grace to strengthen us that we might as pastors turn and strengthen our brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you pray for us. We thank you that you are for us. We know we have an enemy out there who is greater than us, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against demons and satanic forces. Forgive us for overestimating our strength. Forgive us for, over, for underestimating your warnings about Satan, about our own proclivity to sin, and forgive us for finding very subtly, but wrongly, finding our security in our sincerity rather than in you. Thank you 
for the privilege of this temporary season of our lives to be overseers, elders, pastors of your flock. Help us to lead and serve in the strength that you supply so that you would get the glory and our people would get the strength. In Jesus' name, amen.